The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter number 12. Genesis 12. start our reading actually uh, back up in chapter number 11, which is a, a, a record of the descendants of faithful Shem. We won't read all of the names there, of course. I, I just do want to note um, where, we, uh, where we should start in verse number 26 with the introduction of our father Abram. Verse 26 of Genesis 11, Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah, in the land of his birth in the Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. The daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, is Ispah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. And the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country, and from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. The word of the Lord is for our good. Now, Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart may be acceptable in your sight, Lord, our strength and our uh, redeemer. With the dawn of the internet and the advancement of DNA testing, the pursuit of finding one's ancestors has become a billion-dollar business. In 2020, Ancestry.com, one of the first dot-coms that dealt with ancestry, was purchased for $4.7 billion dollars. Today, it services over 1 billion ancestry requests each month. Back in 2018, Professor Julia Crete wrote an essay in which she makes this observation about the search for our ancestry. And I quote, genealogy is a widespread hobby driven by a very powerful metaphor, the family tree. 
but it is far from innocent. Histories of the family tree reveal its disturbing deformity, even as it stands as the most recognizable symbol of benign and loving family relationships. Then Professor Crete makes this brutal assessment. We all know families who have sawed off branches for one offense or another. Families are necessary, but not necessarily benign. You may not have noticed in reading Psalm 3, you were reading the prayer of David who was driven out of Jerusalem by his son who had rebelled against him, Absalom. David's great grief as his family was divided. Families are necessarily necessary, but not necessarily benign. I have no quarrel, of course, with looking up one's ancestry. As long as we remember that the Bible has already given us our ancestry. The concern about disturbing deformities and families torn apart like sawed-off branches is, in fact, the story of humanity as told from the vantage point of the Bible. We are, after all, sons and daughters of Adam. But something else is true as well. Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann makes this wonderful observation when he writes, Running side by side with the sin-filled world is a promise that every day, every minute resounds with the victorious affirmation from God, Behold, I make all things new. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Most of us, myself included, from our earliest church memories have been wired to ask, when is it all going to end? This morning, I want to fuel your Advent longings. I want to fuel your preparations by asking, when did it begin? When did God act and move to begin making all things new? As we learned on the first Sunday of Advent, the promise was made that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and undo the curse of death brought on by the sin of Adam. So we should ask, when did God begin to make good on that promise? I want you to listen to what was written in Genesis 3 and verse 20. This comes just five verses after The promise is made that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Listen to what is written. That Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. If you were to read carefully Genesis 1 and 2 and into chapter number 3, up to that point we only know her as woman which, of course, uh, means that she was taken out of man. But it is immediately after death comes on the scene that Adam names his wife Eve, the mother of all living. Now, we might have thought that Adam, you know, would have shamed his wife and called her the mother of death. That's not what he does. 
wasn't Eve who plunged the human race into death, was it? It was Adam. Two truths that are presented for us that are very important. First, God doesn't name the woman Eve, Adam does. Which means that immediately God begins the work of making all things new. As Adam's stewardship begins to be restored. Don't forget, Adam was given the responsibility to name things. To name things. That was his stewardship over creation. And immediately after the human race is plunged into sin, God begins to make all things new as Adam takes up his stewardship, naming his wife Eve, the mother of all living. And with that, we see God at work. Humanity may have met its end with Adam's sin, but it didn't end there. God is the one who began to make all things new through the seed of the woman, the mother of all living. Advent, then, as a discipleship tool, should help us get a laser focus on God because God, ever since that day, continues to make all things new. And, and one of the things that would help us, then, is with this kind of Charlie Brown-like blueness that we often feel at this time of year. It's a blueness that steals our joy. It weakens our longings for God to make us new. Like Charlie Brown, we too may be tempted to think, well, there must be something wrong with me. I don't feel the way everybody else, you know, seems to feel. And this is what, of course, he confides to Lucy as she has set up her roadside psychology stand and is charging people money for, uh, for her advice. And, and, and he confides to her, Lucy, my trouble is Christmas. I just don't understand it. Instead of feeling happy, I sort of feel let down. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. And Lucy replies, well, I know how you feel about all this Christmas business, getting depressed and all that. It happens to me every year. I never get what I really want. I always get a lot of stupid toys or a bicycle or clothes or something like that. And then Charlie Brown asks Lucy, what is it you want? And her response, real estate. See what Charles Schultz did for us there? He helped us see that disordered longings are not only problems for kids, but for adults as well. Disordered longings are not just problems for kids, but for grown-ups. So how do we bring together this power of the promise, the promise that God himself has kept right 
right after sin entered the world, God began to work. How do we bring that power of the promise together with deeper longings for the promise? How do we live well in the midst of all that God is making new? How do we prepare our hearts for Christ? Well, my answer would be pay attention to our ancestry. Pay attention to our ancestry, and fortunately, you won't need a dot-com to do it. From the moment of Adam's failure, God took the initiative and prepared the people and the time for his promised one to enter the scene and redeem the world. The names of our ancestors are familiar to us. Faithful, righteous, able, righteous, Seth, righteous Noah, righteous Shem, and now faithful Abram. When God meets Abram, Abram's not looking for God. God visits Abram. He comes to him. But when he comes to him, Abram's response was to believe God. You may not be necessarily looking for God this morning, not sure why you're here, but God may be visiting you this morning in a new and special way. And your response should be like the response of Abram, to believe God. From God's vantage point, the promise is made, we're a done deal. But if we look at it from Abram's vantage point, it is anything but certain because we're told that his wife is unable to bear him children. How, how ironic, or we might, you know, use the word foolish, or we might uh, use the word idiotic, or even the word hurtful, it would be to come to someone and promise them something that they've tried to achieve for so long, and not be able to act and achieve. This is what God does. From, from Abram's vantage point, he believes God. But then this, this big question looms. How would a great nation come from a man who was unable to produce one child? But God is the God who makes all things new. He did it immediately after Adam's sin. But with Abram, not so much. Time moves on along with the childlessness. And we get to chapter number um, 15, and, and, and now Abram's struggle is revealed at, at a greater depth when God comes to him again. After these things, verse 1 of Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram and a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And, and Abram's honest response should tell us something about how we need to also be honest with God. Oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram says to God, since you've given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. What is God's, what is God given? Verse 4, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And then God takes him outside and he says, look toward the heaven and count the stars, if you're able to count them. He said to him, so shall your descendants be. And in verse 6, Abram believes the Lord and it is reckoned to him as righteousness, as righteousness. Longing for a promise grows out of thinking carefully about the promise and then seeing a faithful God who prepared the world for that promise. You see, our longings get disordered because we have timetables. And we are even so bold as to put God on our timetable. But when God deals with Abram, he promises something to Abram that Abram could not physically have. And then makes Abram wait. And then takes him outside and says, look up there. That's your descendants, if you can count them. Abram believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. Thinking carefully, seeing a faithful God, the one who is making all things new from the very beginning. And today invites you and me into his presence to prepare our hearts, to experience his presence that is with us, as in this room he makes us new, and in this world in which he is working, preparing us for the day when his glorious return will appear, and he makes himself manifest to all the people. But I want to remind you that in the Christian life, the best preparation is always centrally located in the struggle of faith. The best preparation for us to receive our Lord today or at his coming is always in the struggle of faith. It, it, is, it is located in the hard questions, the long nights of waiting, the challenges, the difficulties. It, it is in the struggle of ambiguity. How can I believe God when he just seems to take so long. The Charlie Brown-like blueness, the dark night of the soul, the David who flees from his son Absalom and hides in a cave. Faith struggles, and in that struggle grows as it thinks carefully about the promise, and then sees a faithful God who prepares the world for that promise. You know, I wish I could report that Abram's struggle with faith resulted in a life of perfect obedience, 
it didn't. It didn't. Some years after God affirms the covenant promise, Abram listens to his wife, Sarah, who convinced him to take her servant girl, Hagar, and through Hagar have a son, Ishmael. As I was thinking of that, I had to ask myself this question, have I not done the same? And I would ask you, how many Ishmaels have been produced in your life? you would not wait for God. Of course, our children may not be named Ishmael. They might be named Consumer Debt. They might be named Anger or Racism or Pride. They might be named Anger or Sloth. But make no mistake, we gave birth to them in the same way Abraham did, through the sins of presumption, through the sins of impatience, sins that were born from lack of faith in God. And as I was thinking about this, like I just I just wrote myself a question. Is there any hope for me? And then I realized, you know, I gotta preach this. Is there any hope for us? God is making all things new. And he did so from day one when sin entered into the world. Hope can always be found in the God who is making all things new. I mean, that's why we we love to watch Charlie Brown's Christmas story because then Charlie Brown asked the question everyone should be asking, is there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? And it's as timely a question for today is when the program first aired in 1965. And the answer that the evangelist Linus Van Pelt gives is, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is about. And then he does. And again, millions and millions and millions of people will hear it this Christmas season. We sang it earlier. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Is there hope? Yeah. Yeah, there's hope. There's hope for the motel in Port Edward. There's hope for the village. There's hope for the hamlet. There's hope for your family with its disfigurements and deformities and sawn-off branches. There's hope for your life. You see, God was at work, and God is at work. As the Apostle Paul wrote, that when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. But the crushing of the head of the serpent serpent came at a price because redemption is not cheap. 
However, when the Christ is crucified, it is in accordance with the scriptures. For it is through the death that the curse of sin is broken. And when Jesus is raised from the dead on the third day, that too is in accordance with the scriptures. And on that day, Christ steps forward as the prototype of all that is made new. Pulling the future forward into our lives, we live in the great day of Christ, the risen one, all things being made new. And you know what? We're invited to celebrate that today. That's why we're here. That the joy of Christ be made in our lives, riveting our longings increase for the return of Christ, most certainly, but to know his presence in our lives even today. In her excellent essay, which is on the front of your bulletin, Janelle LaChapelle asks three what-if questions. And I would like for you to read that essay today at some point and in the coming weeks. And I would really encourage you to examine your heart in light of this sermon with those questions. What if this year our joy didn't end on December 25? What if we lived righteously as did those who were prepared for the coming of Jesus? What if we ask, is it the Savior that you're longing for or just Christmas? Brothers and sisters, God is making all things new. I pray that your Advent longings have been fueled this morning by getting the right answer to the question, when did it all begin? When did God begin to make all things new? From day one. And he who starts his work will be completed in Jesus Christ. And so let us long for that promise to be complete. And not only for the day of his return, but long to know him this day, the crucified, risen, coming again, Lord Jesus. Father, I give you thanks for your word to us today, and I pray if there are any questions about it, any thoughts contrary to it, any struggles with it, that we would not only call upon you, O oh Lord, but call upon someone that can sit down and Walk us through it, talk us through it, pray us through it, that real help would be given today by your grace. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.